He is risen. Amen. A couple months ago, the American Heart Association published an article to remind us that, that movies and TV shows are not always accurate when they depict people's lives being saved by CPR and other heroic measures. Isn't that shocking? TV and movies don't always portray things the way that they happen in real life. Uh, who would have known, right? There are dramatic stories of resuscitations, but there has only been one resurrection. There has only been one who was put to death, was buried, and was raised to a whole new kind of existence, one that would never die again. Jesus Christ did not merely resuscitate and then resume the kind of existence that he had before the crucifixion. In much the same way when we read of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus comes out of the tomb, but Lazarus died later. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to a glorious and ongoing life that would never taste death again. If you have a Bible, John chapter 20 is where we are this morning. You can turn there, scroll there. All four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They, they make it pivotal in their accounts. The rest of the New Testament looks back to Jesus Christ having been crucified and risen. And the scriptures prior to Jesus Christ, the Old Testament scriptures before Jesus told of his death and resurrection. They foretold of a Savior who was coming, who would be a suffering servant. The truth that the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior gave his own life to be crucified in our place and that he rose from the dead defeating sin and death is the focal point of the Bible. It is what it all points to because that is where our hope is in Christ in his death and resurrection. Apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, if there were no resurrection, we would be fools. We would be a group of people gathered on a Sunday morning to have some discussion about a religious philosophy of some kind. But that is not what Scripture teaches. That is not what history has shown us throughout 2,000 years of the church. And a growing, vibrant body of believers whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and who have believed it and taken it to proclaim it. People going to places where even their lives would be put at risk and dying for their faith in Christ to proclaim Jesus Christ has risen. And the moment, the turning point that, that compels us, that should compel us to speak of Christ is this one this morning that we look at in John chapter 20, it is the resurrection of our Savior. I'm going to start by just reading the first 10 verses of John 20, and we'll take a look at the passage a little bit more carefully. But it starts with, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is John's self-identification. So she goes to Peter and to John and says to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. When we left off last week in chapter 19, Jesus Christ had been betrayed, arrested, brutally beaten and tortured, nailed to a cross where he was crucified, pierced with a spear to confirm the fact that he was dead, taken down from the cross, and then, according to Jewish custom, wrapped in cloths with spices throughout those cloths. It says in John 19, 75 pounds of spices used in the burial of Jesus Christ. He is put in the tomb and a stone is rolled in front. Matthew's gospel tells us that it was a especially large stone that was put in front of the tomb and that the Roman governor then sent a guard out to the tomb. He ordered that the tomb be sealed and he told the guard to make the tomb as secure as you can. He was responding to the, the Jewish leaders who said that there were some rumors that there would be a, an attempt to sort of steal the body of Jesus, something to, to portray him as being alive again. And so they go through all of these steps to secure the tomb. Saturday comes the Sabbath. We, we have no record, but we can only presume from what we see of the disciples on this first day of the week that Saturday is spent in grief. Saturday is spent in just mourning beyond what they have experienced because the one that they have followed and thought was their savior is gone. And as John has already made clear, there is, despite everything they've been told, no hope of a resurrection in their minds. They believe it is over. And very early on Sunday, on the first day of the week, some of the women who were there at the time Jesus was crucified, said they would go back to the tomb and they would further take care of his body for burial. The, the first burial was done at, at night on a Friday evening, right before the Sabbath, had to be rushed before the sundown, before the Sabbath began. And so there was some sense by the women that perhaps it was rushed and they could do it with more dignity, that they could spend more time caring for the body. And so the intention is to go out on that first day of the week. They are not looking for a risen savior. That is not their aim. Their aim is to take care of a dead body and to show it some dignity and some respect. We know from John chapter 20, that day, everything changed. They would not find a dead body. They would find Jesus Christ alive. And by the end of that day, would be given the charge themselves to go and preach. Starts, though, in John, in sort of typical John fashion with a, chronology for us. He starts and says, now on the first day of the week, we start with the first light. So verse one says, it's Mary Magdalene who goes while it's still dark. When we take the gospel accounts together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and try to harmonize them, it's clear that at some point there were four women who were out there at the tomb, but it appears that Mary Magdalene was first, perhaps impatient, perhaps wanting to just scout it out, make sure they got back to the right spot where the tomb was. No doubt Mary is expecting to see in the darkness the torches of the Roman encampment there, and instead when she gets there, there are no soldiers, and the stone has been rolled away. And that, that is enough 
for Mary. She is convinced that after all that had been done to Jesus, all of the indignity that he had suffered, that this is one final mockery, that somehow now his body has been taken from out of the tomb. And she doesn't look further. She is convinced that Jesus is not only dead, but now it's even worse. Now they've stolen his body. And so the grief that has overwhelmed her that weekend is now even that much worse. So she runs to the house where Peter and John were. It is John's style often to give us those, those day markers. It was this day of the week, or it was so many days after the, the last incident. And so he does that here when he says, now on the first day of the week, Mary came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Jewish readers understood the significance of the first day of the week because that brings them back to the creation story in the book of Genesis when God made the heavens and the earth. And so you go back to Genesis and day one is Genesis 1-3 and it says on, God said on that day, let there be light. And there was light. God begins creation with light. I would suggest to you it was not simply eager Impatience on Mary's part that sent her to the tomb while it was still dark. It was very much God's design. It's certainly not a coincidence that John sees fit in his chronicling the, the resurrection to say it was early on the first day, in fact, while it was still dark. John is the one who, when he introduces Jesus at the beginning of the Gospel of John, starts by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and he speaks of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, how Jesus Christ became man. But then when he describes Jesus, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. From the very beginning of John's introduction of Jesus, it is this light and darkness theme. And it's not, it's not John just sort of coming up with this theme. It is because Jesus described himself that way in chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so John, from early on, is depicting this as the light that has come into the world that darkness cannot overcome. And it is significant to John that the day when the light of the world would dawn forevermore, never to be overcome, that day begins in darkness and in grief, at least from man's perspective. That day begins in the darkness of the early morning, and it is a day that will show us the light of the world, risen. Peter and John are awakened to Mary's report. They run to the tomb. John, for some reason, sees fit to tell us that he is faster than Peter, we presume that that's because we think by chronology he's probably younger than Peter. That's one of those when we get to heaven, we'll have to ask him just more specifically what the, what the little jab was there on Peter or what that was meant for. But John says, I got there first. And you see the description in verses 4 through 9. It says they're running together. John gets there first. Peter then gets there. John stoops and he looks in, doesn't go in. Peter, in sort of typical Peter fashion, sort of impetuously just goes into the tomb. Let's see what's there. And he, he immediately sees that there's the cloths that, that were used for the burial of Jesus Christ. And so after Peter sees it, then John walks in after. And verse 8 says that John, once he had reached the tomb, went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet... They did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That is John's confession 
that in going in and what he saw is what provoked belief, not in his understanding yet of Old Testament prophecy. He's, he's admitting the fact that he and the other disciples, despite what they have heard from Jesus, still were not compelled by Scripture yet that it would come, that they would ultimately see. In fact, we, we know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus walks with two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he unfolds all of this from the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures tell us the Messiah is coming and that he will suffer and that he will rise again. Bob read on to us on Sunday night, he taught from Psalm 16 that speaks of, of the Savior not being abandoned to death, his body not being given over to decay. And so the Old Testament, Hosea, Isaiah, other places, speaks forward to this resurrection. But John is telling us he and Peter weren't running to the tomb that morning reciting Old Testament verses saying, we're going to see Jesus risen. They were running there with the same expectation of what Mary had given them. Something has gone wrong here, and the body is not there. And then they look in the tomb. And John tells us it was, it was in the tomb when he began to take in what he saw that he believed. And what he saw were those cloths, those same linen cloths that had been wrapped so tightly around Jesus, now lying there as if the body had simply left them behind. John is struck by what he sees because this doesn't fit any other kind of narrative. They were stealing his body. They, they wouldn't take the time to do that. And if they did take linen cloths off, they wouldn't be lying there looking sort of organized as they should. And then it says there was this face cloth, the head cloth, the cloth that had been wrapped around the head of Jesus like a turban. And, and he says that it's folded is what it says in the ESV. The Greek word there also has the idea of rolled up or wrapped up. And so it really is he sees the, the grave cloths and then he sees the face cloth in the place where likely the head was. And it's still retaining some, some shape as if it's wrapped still resembled the, the turban that had been wrapped around the head at burial. John Stott, who's a biblical scholar, writes, the headcloth itself, because of the complicated crisscross pattern of the bandages, might well have retained its concave shape, a crumpled turban, but with no head inside it. In other words, John is looking at this and he's saying, everything is, is here as if it hasn't been moved except for the body that, that was put here. And it is at that moment that John says he saw and he believed. John becomes the first one that we have in Scripture who believed that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. That it wasn't that he was merely the body gone in some way or something mysterious or underhanded had taken place, but rather that the, the Savior who had been buried there was no longer there and that he was indeed risen. No one would have taken the time to unwrap the body or to, to go through the motions of leaving the linen cloths behind. John was seeing the evidence that God intended for him to see. That where that body now laid... A dead man had come to life and simply passed through them. So pick up with me again in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Again, we know from Matthew 28 that at some point, Mary was amongst other women who saw an angel who said, he is not here because he is risen as he said. And yet in Mary's mind, this is is still not compelling. The tomb is still empty. There is still something wrong with this scene, not the least of which is the fact that she is not seeing Jesus. She is still seeing an empty tomb, and so she is still in grief. Mary is not entirely sure of what she believes, but she does not believe Jesus is risen. And so after John and Peter leave and run back to the other disciples, Mary looks in again, convinced the body's been stolen, sees two angels, turns and sees one that she presumes to be the gardener. Now before we are hard on Mary at all at this point. Remember that when Jesus that day walked on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, he walked and talked with them and taught them, and they did not realize it was Jesus until after the fact. And they said, hmm, our hearts were burning within us as he spoke, and then they realized who it was. And so there was something about the glorified spiritual body of Jesus Christ having been resurrected combined with the emotions of those who were his followers that made it not immediately recognizable that she was looking on the very one she was grieving. And so verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Verse 17 is one of the more interesting verses. Commentators are all over the map on exactly what this means. This picture of Mary clinging, Jesus saying, don't cling, that I've not yet ascended, and and exactly what he means here and what she is, her emotional response is, it is probably simplest to assume here that Mary is clinging to Jesus in the same sense you or I might, I'm not going to lose you again. You have been away from me, and I thought I lost you before, and you're here, and I'm not letting go. And and Jesus, in his kindness, says, Mary, I'm I've not yet ascended. I'm here. You can let go. I'm still here. But go and tell the disciples, my brothers, he calls them here, go and tell them that you have seen me and that I am ascending. Not before he teaches them, not before he exhorts them will he ascend, but this is his, his instruction to Mary. And Mary becomes Scripture's first recorded clear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. I have seen Jesus alive, she tells the disciples. I have seen the Savior. The empty tomb was interesting. It it drew questions. It was startling. The grave cloths were were compelling, certainly for John. They they began to speak of something that happened here beyond what, what might seem logical. But now there was no question. Jesus Christ was seen alive. And Mary is the first to go back and say, I have seen him. Verse 19. 
fast forward to that evening. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands, presumably the scars, and his side where it had been pierced. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is Jesus' greeting of the disciples. His appearance to them is remarkably rich, not simply in the most obvious fact, and that is that they are seeing Jesus alive and confirming the resurrection, but it is in what he speaks to them. If you think back to the night before he was crucified, John has recorded that whole discourse of Jesus teaching them on that night, preparing them. When he says, I will go away, and you will not see me, and where I am going, you cannot come, and you will face persecution, and you will see me again, and then your hearts will be filled with joy, and the Spirit will come, and he will teach you. And all of that instruction that goes into that night before his crucifixion, and in the midst of all of that teaching, Jesus in John 14 said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That is, presumably, Thursday night before he is crucified. And for the next 72 hours, it is hard to imagine that their hearts were anything but troubled and afraid. They watched what happened to Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. He is Tried unjustly, he is beaten, he is crucified, he is dead, he is buried. They were troubled, they were grieving, they were terrified. In fact, John makes that clear when he says the room they were in, he says the doors were locked in that room because we were afraid that the same Jewish leaders that took care of Jesus were going to come for us next. And so even after all that's transpired just in that day, we come to the evening and they are still, still in a state of fear. They know that they are still despised by the Jewish leaders. Peace is still, still elusive. And then suddenly Jesus is in their midst. Without the benefit of the door being unlocked, Jesus Christ, who had miraculously shed the grave cloths, now is miraculously standing in that room, in the midst of them. And his first words to them, peace be with you. We're tempted to think, well, this is shalom in Hebrew. This is, you know, this is just a greeting. It's good to see you. How are you? This is much more than that. When Jesus says, peace be with you, he is speaking the very fulfillment of what he had promised them three nights ago of my peace I give you. That's why he says it twice in this passage. Peace be with you. Jesus Christ is assuring them that I am here. And the peace that only I can give, the peace that I promised you, is yours. I am alive. So you can know that everything I promised, including that peace, is a sure thing. Because here I stand in your midst, risen. This was not a, this was not a promise of a 
trouble-free existence. This was not Jesus saying, and so from here on out, everything will just be hunky-dory, you know, prosperity and happiness, no problems anymore. It wasn't, it wasn't what he was saying. Because, in fact, each of these men would go on to suffer as followers of Jesus Christ. Most, if not all, ultimately being executed for their faith in Christ. In fact, near the very end of that discourse before his crucifixion, Jesus had said to his disciples, I have said many things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart I have overcome the world. The risen Christ standing before them was the declaration of victory. I have overcome the world. Your God is alive. Your Savior is risen. You can have peace because Jesus Christ rose. And from that moment on, followers of Jesus Christ, from those in that room to you and I here today, can know that there is nothing that Satan can do, that the world can do, that can take away the peace that God gives to his people, that can take away the work that God has done in defeating sin and death. Jesus Christ is raised. That means sin and death have been swallowed up in victory. Our worst enemies, sin, the thing you and I can't somehow absolve on our own. We can't erase it from our record on our own. We can't balance it off with enough good works to somehow outweigh it. We can't go to church enough or go through enough motions enough to somehow deal with our sin because we are still guilty before God. Sin is defeated in the cross and demonstrated in the resurrection. And death is defeated. One enemy that we all face. And yet Jesus Christ said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Jesus Christ is raised and death is swallowed up in victory. His disciples needed this. You and I need this. We need to be reminded of this. The disciples in that moment might have been tempted to think, oh, this is good. Jesus is here. We're just going to stay right here. This is just going to be ongoing worship service. We'll order in, and we'll stay put, and this is where it'll all be. That's not what Jesus says. Because, in fact, what Jesus is commissioned to them is, is you're going to unlock the door, and you're going to go out from here. And you're going to go out in the power of his spirit. He speaks of giving to them this Holy Spirit that he had talked to them about in the earlier chapters of John, who would empower them and equip them and remind them and teach them of truth in order that they could then go out into that same hate-filled world and speak of Jesus Christ, risen, offering salvation. This is the first commission. We often look to Matthew 28, which clearly commissions we as believers to go and make disciples. Acts 1.8, to go into all the world. That is indeed our calling, but it, it actually starts here on this very first night. Jesus Christ says, if, if you want to know what it is that you're supposed to do, if you have any questions, let me make this clear to you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And so if you have any question about what the calling is from here on out, simply look to me, Jesus is saying. 
what you saw me do in obedience to the Father. As I preached forgiveness of sins, as I went out and loved and served people and held out the truth of the gospel, so you too. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Speak my words. Be like Christ as you live before other people. Love others as Christ. As Jesus obeyed the Father, obey God and love people and serve them and proclaim his gospel. If we do that, if we share the truth of Jesus Christ with other people, then that's, that's what explains verse 23. It might sound sort of like a formula here. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is not some kind of magic that's given to followers of Jesus Christ. This is simply Jesus saying, if you do as I have sent you, and you proclaim Jesus Christ risen and coming again, people will respond in one of two ways. They will either believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection, and their sins will be forgiven. Or they will reject Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, and they will remain in their sins and under the judgment of God. That's why it's so important, as he says here, that's why it's so important that his Holy Spirit be given to us because we are, we're not just declaring some message of a good rabbi from Nazareth who spoke about love and nice things. We're preaching a gospel that has eternal significance in the lives of those who hear it. It is a gospel that calls people to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for all of eternity. We can't keep that to ourselves, can we? Jesus died and rose again. If we believe that, if we believe that our Savior crushed the power of sin and death and that by his grace and power we must go, we must speak to a lost world and pray that God would bring people to forgiveness of their sins. Yesterday we stood at the side of a grave for the burial of a brother. Jimmy DeGiulio, who loved the Lord and trusted in Christ. We read together about the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, the body that is buried is perishable, but raised imperishable. The body that is buried in weakness, but raised in power and glory. Buried a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. Listen, the world looks at that, people standing next to a casket, and to the world that sounds like fantasy. You are here in that bleak place where it seems utterly hopeless, and you're talking about a body being raised imperishable, spiritual, glorious. Friends, we, we say that because God's word has taught us that our Savior and his resurrection is a first fruits for us, that what happened on that first day of the week not only was the defeating of sin and death and the announcement of victory by the conquering king, but it was what we rest our hope in. It is where we find our peace in any of life's circumstances. Because we believe that if Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and resurrected, that all who are trusting in him are risen from the dead spend eternity in his glorious presence. His everlasting peace goes with us and it compels us to speak this truth, to call others 
to come to Jesus and to believe in his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word bringing us back to that, that first day of the week, for setting us in the, in the sights of those disciples as they contemplated with grief the loss of their master, only to see him alive, the grave cloths emptied, the tomb open, and Jesus Christ glorified and resurrected. Father, we put our hope in this. We believe that you are the creator and that this is what you have called your people to do, is to find hope in a Savior who gave his perfect life as a ransom for sinners. If any here this morning are not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that the glorious wonder of Jesus Christ would capture them, would bring them to the place of turning from sin and trusting in Jesus following him and one day seeing him in glory. And Lord, for we who are following Christ, thank you for again speaking words of peace to us, for teaching us again that in the middle of all of the circumstances and trials and suffering we may face, that we have been given an irrevocable inheritance from our Savior that he has given to us peace and eternal life that nothing can separate us from. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for our Savior. In his glorious name we pray. Amen.